usually Sarah will send, also send me a, a little thing to say, do, a, do an announcement for this or that, so she gives me one to say. And this week she sent me a thing that said, say something clever about St. Patrick's Day. I'm like, and then we are talking after service. She goes, you should do say something clever about St. Patrick's Day. I don't know. Uh, happy St. Patrick's Day. Uh, one of the coolest things about, about Patrick was uh, when he went to Ireland uh, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was actually, when we think about his like, missionary journeys over there, that was the second time he went. The first time he went, he was taken as a slave. He was captured and taken as a slave, and he escaped. And then uh, went and was trained. He was actually a parish priest for years. And then God shows up when he's at the ripe young age of 40 and says, I want you to go back to the Irish. And he does. Now, when he went back to the Irish, it's interesting because uh, the church itself was angry at him because what they wanted Patrick to do was to go and civilize all the barbarian hordes. <laughs> and Patrick's like, that's not going to work, man. <laughs> they have way too much fun for us. And so he, go- so he goes back, and what he does is he starts to speak the gospel in a way that they understand. Not, not that he changed the gospel, but he spoke it in their cultural containers. And this is why even today you'll see you know, things like the shamrock, the, the, the three-leaf clover, because they loved rhetorical triads. And so he would talk about God and the Trinity, like, you love triads. Well, let me tell you about the triune God. And they, and they just loved it. So Patrick spoke in such a great way into that culture. And, it's, and it really kind of almost changed the entire portion of that world ever since. So, happy St. Patrick's Day. It is also Mike Harmon's birthday. And it's also, uh, it's also Michelle Combs' birthday, although. So, but anyway, that's just neither here nor there. Anybody else's birthday? Anybody get like the Whatever. We got two in the room, okay? That's all I got for that. Hey, welcome to Element. If you are new, <laughs> there are Bibles in the seat. I don't normally call people's birthdays, okay? Uh, although, when I was in Ireland, we went to this church, and it was, you see your third service, I can ramble. Um, there, was, there, was this, there was this pastor at this church that we went to, and he was like, anybody got a birthday? Because apparently it's the thing that they do. And, you know, like this week, and people would raise their hands, and he's all, Joe, da, da, da. And I'm like, oh, man, I'd be like, ter- I, I got faces, not names. I'd be like, yeah, you. And, he like, and like 20 people have like birthdays that week, and he's calling everybody by name, and yeah, everybody sings happy birthday to them. We're not going to do that. Uh, but it was, it was crazy. <laughs> it was just, we're America. <laughs> we, we don't do that. <laughs> anyway, if you're new to Element, welcome. <laughs> there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes to go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about, some questions to ask one another to go a little bit deeper and remind you of what we talk about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Version. You click on More and then Events in Version will come up by GPS in your smartphone. And you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Uh, this is Isaiah chapter 10, verse 23. And it says, For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who trust you because you are trustworthy and that we would place ourselves in your hands when we don't understand the beginning from the end of something, we would still trust you in the midst of it. And we walk in those places that you have called us to because you are good and you call your people into goodness and hope and grace and and life again. So teach us to be a people who give you glory as we live in that joy that you so constantly provide us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this series through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've been here for a while and you haven't picked up on that, 
<laughs> okay. Uh, the, book, the book was written by someone who claims to be King Solomon. Solomon was one of the wisest and richest people who ever lived. And it's really kind of a philosophical treaty on what life is like under the sun and the things we create apart from who God is. And so over the course of what we call Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and I say what we call Ecclesiastes 3 because Solomon didn't really sit down and go, chapter 3, verse 1, and start writing. Uh, the chapter breaks were done in the 1200s. The verse breaks were done in the 15 at the University of Paris. It's so that we can find out where things were. So when I say open to Ecclesiastes 3 verse 18, which you should open to Ecclesiastes 3.18, you would know how to get there because it kind of references like that. Now sometimes when they do that though, uh, it, it doesn't kind of flow exactly how I think it should flow. Not that I'm smarter than they are, but just, you know, I got this. So today we're actually going to go a little bit into chapter 4 as well. So we're going to kind of just move through this. But anyway, what we call chapter 3, it's uh, kind of, we've broken out and talked about the sovereignty of God, the goodness of who He is in these times and these seasons, and that God is sovereign over all of our lives. And, but because God is is sovereign, it has led Solomon to ask certain questions, and he lands on why is there injustice and why is there death? Uh, what he really gets to is he will say if there is only injustice in the world, well, it would be better to never be born. It's, it's a very happy set of verses today. But he wants to push us to the place of learning and thinking about oppression and injustice and death and where we're supposed to go and see what God is doing in the world. Many of the things that we see today in our world, Solomon saw these things as well in his world. I think some of his depression might have been because as the king he set policy, so he might have been the reason behind some of the bad stuff that that was going on. But in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he'll talk about the poorest of the poor and how they are stuck in that state and it doesn't get better. He will even talk about immigrants coming in and not finding work or finding it hard to work for a decent wage. He will talk about education and how it, uh, sometimes it fails children. He'll talk about fathers abusing their wives and children. So the thing Solomon sees, we still see as well. These things of injustice, genocide, sex trafficking, homelessness. And so he wants someone to come and comfort the oppressed. And twice he will meant that there is nobody there to go and to comfort the oppressed. Now, he sounds a lot like Jesus. Like when Jesus comes, Jesus voices his frustration as he looks over his people and he sheds tears for the harassed and the helpless in Matthew 9.36. He will also respond in anger at their oppressors when he chases the money changers out of the temple in Luke 9.45 and 46. But Jesus, rather than just talking about it, actually does something about it. Jesus will die and rise from the grave to rescue us, to bring us back into relationship with God again so we can be a people who now begin to hear the cry and make a difference about it. Uh, Rather than just saving one person, Jesus goes to save the world. But I think we still, even today, have a lot of the frustrations that Solomon had. I was reading this commentary by Philip Ryken on Ecclesiastes, and when he talks about this section and injustice and oppression in the world, he will start to talk about his frustration for people who are, uh, who, who, who are kind of in a place of injustice when they love and follow God. Like He talks about this 19-year-old Egyptian girl named Lana. And he says she was raised in a devout Muslim home, and she is raised to despise Christianity. She starts going to school. She meets a friend who says, hey, listen to this radio program. And the radio program talks about the gospel. And so she begins to wonder, is Jesus you know, who he talks about in the scripture, or is Jesus just a messenger as she has been taught? So she starts to read the Bible. She comes to the conviction that Jesus is who he said he was, and so she submits her life and follows him as savior of her life. Well, as soon as this happens, she is then attacked by her family. Her father beat her. Her mother wouldn't allow her to eat at family meals anymore, and eventually they declared her dead and threw her out of the house. 
And after this, she is then repeatedly kidnapped and beaten until she's unconscious. And that's the oppression under the sun. Why does it happen? And, and i got to say, that doesn't just happen to Christians. That happens to a lot of people. It happens to Muslims in places in America. It happens to women. It happens to children. It happens to homosexuals. And, and none of it's right. And so the question is, how do we respond? What do we do in the midst of this? How do we step into those places of injustice? And really, why do we step into those places of injustice? So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, verse 17 is where we kind of ended last week. And Solomon says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Solomon's trying to take chapter 3 and pull it together with these times and these seasons and these principles that he has been talking about. But he applies it now to his own heart. There will be a time for justice, ultimate justice. And that doesn't mean that we don't fight and try to bring about justice now. God has given us responsibility, not just to sit back and do nothing, but to actually do something about injustice. But all of our efforts in the end aren't going to end all the injustice. God will. And so our confidence in the end, it isn't just in some justice system that many times doesn't work. Our confidence is in the ultimate judge, Jesus. It's like Abraham says to God in Genesis 18, verse 25, he says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the answer to that is the rhetorical, of course he will. Of course he will. We live with a certain hope that God will always do what is just and right, which means we still get to pray for justice even when we can do nothing about it. But doing that still requires a lot of faith and trust in who God is. And it's not always easy because sometimes we don't see the fruition to all of our prayers. So Solomon is going to go in and deal with God sometimes delays. Why does he do these things to enable us to see what we see? So let's talk about this. Uh, Gen- uh, Ecclesiastes 3 starting in verse 18, which is where we left off last week. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man, what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. Now, Solomon is not saying that human beings are only like animals. He's not saying that we're not made in the image of God. This isn't a comment on biology. This is a comment on destiny. This is a comment that we all die. He's saying our current life is like a proving ground. It's meant to help us understand what and who we really are. That we're to live in humility because at one point we are all going to die. Just like the animals that are around us. In verse 20 he says, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. This is one of the Bible's strongest statements that death is the great equalizer. Everybody dies. Everybody's got those two appointments, birth and death. We all go there. And so it's kind of the idea is when you drive down the road, you ever see roadkill? Anybody? Right? Do you ever think, that's going to be me one day? Right? Unless it's a possum, because it may not actually be dead. Right? But do you ever see roadkill and think, I'm going to be dead one day? It's, it, it, Solomon is saying even roadkill is meant to remind us of the fact that we one day will die just like an animal. That with our last breath, we're going to be dust. It's supposed to be sobering. Psalm 49 verse 12 says, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. It's the idea. Don't get puffed up. Don't think you're more important than you actually are. And I think if we would all remember this, there might be less injustice in the world. If we would just remember that in humility that we all live by the hand and the grace of God. The Trappist monks do this thing. And if you've ever heard of Trappist monks, you've probably only heard of them because they make beer. But they do a lot of other stuff as well. Okay? But the Trappist monks have this thing where together they will dig a grave. And every day, as part of the ritual, they will go out and look in this grave and think about the mortality. And when one of them dies, they'll put them in that grave, they'll fill the grave, and then together they will then go and dig another grave. This isn't meant to be morbid. What it's meant to be is a sober reflection and a reminder that life is a gift from God. It's, it's grace. 
And that's meant to be this idea that we are supposed to live with humility, that the idea of death as it comes is supposed to make us be more humble. And so Solomon becomes very as existential, very philosophical in his words here. Verse 21, he says, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? That's the question. Who's going to help you be able to see what's going to happen on the other side of your death? Like all the things you strove for, what's going to happen out of that? When is God going to bring about ultimate justice? How's it all work out? Who can see what will come after him? Now, for a really long time, a lot of ancients called this looking behind the hedge. A hedge is like a thick brush. It's hard to see through because it's so thick, and death is like that hedge, and we can't see the other side. Years ago, they came out with this kid's movie called Over the Hedge. Anybody ever see it? I love it. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's hilarious, okay? But it's this movie about all these critters, and they're trying to figure out, you know, what's on the other side of the hedge. Some places it's thinner. Some places it's thicker. Oh, but, but what's over there? Ecclesiastes is saying that we are like that movie. We all live on one side of the hedge, and we're trying to figure out what's on the other side of it. And so Solomon says proof is really hard to come by in this. What lies on the other side? Uh, death is going to bring the ultimate answer, but once you find out, you can't go back and tell anybody else about it. It's like, ah, right? Uh, Celtic spirituality speaking of St. Patrick's Day, right, had positive and negative effects on Christianity when it spread through places like Ireland. I think one of the most positive it had was trying to get our minds around this idea that the, that the world is poetic, that it's dramatic. There's all kinds of things that God is doing. And so Celtic Christianity, it talks about these thin places where the, where the natural world and the supernatural world kind of come together at their nearest or thinnest points. Now, they believe that these are seen in the birth of a child or the death of a loved one, and some of their ancient songs. And when the church came through, they'd see it in some ancient hymns, or the, the sight of the sun as it rises over the horizon, over, over the world. And they teach that we could understand our own frailness, like Solomon is talking about, and then the glory and the creativity of God. We would see these thin moments in things like life and death and birds flying through the sky, and it would go back to the understanding of our own frailness and take us to a place of humility. Uh, One commentator wrote this. They said, It's strange that the keenest mind spend a lifetime probing the answer to what lies beyond the hedge, and yet the biggest fool knows the answer one second after he dies. I think it's funny. Maybe you don't. Whatever. The truth is, after we die, only one of two things is going to happen. Either one, you're still there and you're going on, and at that point, it's really good to remember. This is that's why I trusted Jesus, because he's true. Or second, there's no you to find anything out, and you are just dust. Uh, Sometimes at funerals, I'm weird, okay, but I'll sit in the back of the funeral and I'll be like, now they know. Just try it sometime, okay? Uh, Some people who believe that they know what is behind the hedge, heaven, eternity, wonder why God had put it there at all. And I think it's important to understand that we're the ones who put it there. We're the ones who ran away from God and brought death into the world and so that thing came in. But now that's there, why wouldn't God just show everybody what's on the other side so, so we would all believe? Like, why can't we peer into heaven and see what God is doing as clear as you see me and I see you right now? Why can't we do that? Which is really the question, does that hedge now serve some type of purpose? And because I think the answer is yes, because God is good, I think there's good things in why we don't know what happens right on the other side of it. And the book, God is Closer Than You Think, the author says this, Those who believe nothing lies behind the hedge must struggle with why the rumors of something more are so persistent. 
Kind of a good line. I think Solomon is showing here that there's a reason for the hedge. In Ecclesiastes 3, 11, we are told that God has set eternity in our hearts, but we cannot figure out the beginning to the end of all of it. See, our kind of our problem is we long for eternity. We long for all the things in our lives that are good and pure that we really enjoy. Why don't those things just get to go on forever? Why in the middle of our life is this roadblock called death? We want to know what God is doing in the midst of it. And this is where faith and trust and humility all comes in. That's why Solomon says in verse 22, So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. In context of Ecclesiastes, this means what he has been given, what God has placed into our hands. It means that we work and we trust God, that he's doing something. And Solomon, kind of for a moment, it kind of seems like he feels a little bit better, then it overwhelms him again. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been. That means not yet been born. And has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Again, what Ecclesiastes is trying to do is help us to see that men are not the answer. The answers are not found just under the sun. It leaves us in a place of perpetually feeling like we are lost when we focus on things just under the sun and that man isn't the answer man is typically the problem even somebody as wise as Solomon ends up not having the answers like the week that I wrote this message uh, Billy Graham died and someone from Element sent me this this email and they said yeah my mom believed that when Billy Graham died it's a time for the second coming of Jesus and then he said just let I give you a heads up and I'm like okay I think he was cracking a joke but this is what a lot of people do we, we think men have the answers. Oh, Billy Graham died. Well, God can't affect the world anymore. Billy Graham's gone. Oh, my goodness, what's going to happen now? Right? We always think men are the answers when it's only Jesus who is the answer. Philip Ryken says, For all the progress he, that Solomon, had made in understanding the meaning of life, there were still many things he could not understand, but at least he was asking the right questions. I would go further to say that he is also pushing us to begin to ask the right questions as well and to look to God for those answers. And I think one of the best ways to help us to see the answers that God has provided is to look at some of those questions that Solomon asked and see how the rest of the scriptures kind of answer those things. Like, who knows where the spirit of man goes upward? Who can bring him to see what will be after him? How is this all going to work out? Our questions and injustice and death, what happens in all this? And these are great questions. And what we would need to solve this issue is for someone beyond the hedge to come and answer and tell us about it, the truth of it. And someone did. God came in Jesus to rescue us. Jesus comes, he makes breathtaking claims, like John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus will talk about that. You don't have to be alone. No one needs to live in fear with what they don't know and what's going to happen. He speaks about how God is restoring and redeeming and rescuing and bringing relationship with us, that everybody can have life with God again. Then he gives us a mission and a purpose to join him in carrying that mission to other people who are behind the hedge. And I think it's good to understand that 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked on this earth in physical form, it was not the first time that God made those claims and those promises. If you go all the way back to the beginning of humanity, right after the first parents fell, they break relationship with God, they're running from him, they, they build this hedge. God shows up and he makes some promises and statements to them. One of the people that he talked to in the midst of is the serpent who tempted them. And in Genesis 3.15, 
God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And this is the idea that we are now in a war of our own choosing. That Satan is not God's enemy, like, ooh, God and the devil, who's going to win? He's our enemy. And he says, he shall bruise your head. The word bruise is the word shuf, and it means to crush and overwhelm, that Satan will be crushed when Jesus comes. And it says, but in the meantime, you shall bruise his heel. He will strike out at God's people, but really only hit the place where God just was. Now, the understanding of this is what's going to be fleshed out throughout the scriptures as our understanding of what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrections. Uh, theologians will call Genesis 3.15 the proto Evangelion, which is the preaching of the first gospel. And when you see God walking in flesh on the earth, it's Jesus. And so Jesus here promises to these people who have run away from him that he is the one who will come and rescue them. He is the one who will do this. He preaches this to those who are lost behind the hedge. Now, in the gospel class, especially in the one in salvation, which I taught last week, I talk about how one of the main questions we have in regard to this world and salvation and all of that is, is God trustworthy? Is God trustworthy? Like with oppression and death, so we all question it. We all are people who have to trust people at some times in our lives, whether it's spouses or friends or parents or bosses. And the way we judge to see if someone is trustworthy is, do they follow through? Did they say something and did they follow through with that? And so our question then becomes, do we believe God is trustworthy? When God says, I will bring about ultimate justice, I will bring an end to all these things, do we trust him to be good for what he said? Like when God makes a promise, does God keep his promise? And this theme kind of runs throughout the Bible of how trustworthy God actually is. Now, one of the main places we see God's trustworthiness is in Genesis chapter 15, which I talked about in the class last week. God comes to a man uh, named Abraham. He does this in Genesis 12, and he makes some promises to him. In Genesis 15, God is reiterating those promises to him because now it's been a couple of decades since he first made those promises. And what God shows himself to Abraham is, first off, that God is going to be his shield. He says, I am your shield. Abraham just won a battle to liberate some people from captivity, and God says, you won because I'm your shield. And God is our protector. He is our defender. He covers us. He defends us. And the second thing he says is, is I'm your great reward. Abraham had flocks and herds and goats and camels, which I know you're all really excited about. But no matter how much you have, God says, I am still your reward. Which means you can be poor and oppressed and all these things can happen, but God can still be your reward. God is the one who makes us rich in his goodness and grace. Now, these are the truths about God's character. For Abraham, God had promised him a son that would lead to a son, to a son, to a son that would ultimately lead to God's son, Jesus. God promises him a land which will lead to the nation of Israel. He says, I'm going to bless you so you'd be a blessing to everybody else. Now, Abraham is really respectful, but he asks God how this can be because he is really old now, like don't buy green bananas is old, and he still hasn't had any kids. So, so what, what can you give me, God? What can we do so I, I can see what you're doing? Now, you have to remember that all the promises, when you look throughout the Old Testament, is ultimately, in the end, about Jesus. So all these promises God makes is really about Jesus. On earth today, one billion people claim the name of Jesus, and it starts with this old dude and his barren wife who couldn't have babies because God is always about bringing things like it is like 100 to 3 and it's the fourth quarter and two minutes left and no one can win this and that's God shows up. God's like boom we're like that I don't see how that could ever happen and it's like God's like with me that's right it's impossible with you but with me and God always seems to do that. So Jesus comes and all nations of the earth are blessed through him. So what God does is show Abraham how serious he is about these promises. So what he does is Abraham brings him some animals.
animals. These animals get butchered. This, is, this would make total sense to Abraham. It makes us go ugros, but it made total sense to Abraham. And these two halves of the animals will sit opposite of each other. And in Genesis 15, verse 17, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now, let me explain kind of what's going on here. When we hear a uh, smoking fire pot, we think of like your, your cooker you got out in the backyard with the legs and it kind of hobbled through the pieces. Th- this is talking about how God is coming in smoke and fire. God is making a promise. These promises by a visible decree becomes a covenant. And so what you see how God's going to make himself shown through this covenant. Now, smoke and fire. When the Israelites leave Egypt, when God leads them out, by day it's, a, it's this cloud. At night it's a pillar of fire. It's probably the same thing. Just during the day it's so bright you can't see the fire. But God leads them out by smoke and fire. When God takes his people to this mountain called Sinai and with them and gives them another covenant. He will come down in smoke and fire. When the temple is built and God comes to inhabit that temple, he comes down in smoke and fire. In Isaiah chapter 4, he sees him as God as smoke and fire. This is who God is. And so what you see is that the smoke and fire passes through the pieces. When an ancient covenant like this was made, those who participate in the covenant would walk through the pieces saying, this is what will happen if I don't follow through. Now, in Genesis, God's making a covenant with Abraham, but Abraham doesn't pass to the pieces. Only God will pass to the pieces, which means God says, I'm going to fulfill my promises no matter what. That God knows that Abraham and humanity would never be able to uphold any end of any covenant. And so God pledges himself and obligates himself to Abraham and those who follow Christ no matter what. Because ultimately, it is all about Jesus. We call this an unconditional covenant. God says, no matter what, I am going to save sinners. This is more than just about Abraham. This is all about humanity. And years later, after this moment, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Abraham, comes and walks to the pieces because God is trustworthy. Jesus comes and he is oppressed. He has injustice done to him. God will say to Abraham, I will fulfill what I said to you, even if it takes me being slaughtered just like these animals. And you can't let that pass you by. God commits himself to death to fulfill his words and his promises to us on this side of the hedge. It's extraordinary. You will get a son that will lead to Jesus. You will get land. How can I be sure? I will commit myself to death to make it happen. And Jesus comes and dies a bloody, brutal death to bring about the terms of the covenant given to Abraham and to bless all nations of the earth. God has constantly been saying, ever since humanity ran away from him and hid themselves behind this hedge, that I am your shield, I am your reward, I will send Jesus. A kingdom is coming from beyond the hedge. And yet we get so focused on things under the sun that we fail to look up and see what God is doing here and now. We fail to look up and see what he's doing. Solomon was in a place. He didn't see Jesus. I think he hoped what God was doing, but he never got to see it. We live on the other side. And we look back and we see what Jesus came to do. In the book of Hebrews, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That we are all covenant breakers. And the only person who doesn't break their covenant is God himself. As a matter of fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus trades himself for us. We are told that God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And part of the problem why I think it's so hard for us to understand what God is doing is that people have gotten the idea that Jesus, his gospel, life, death, resurrection, his good news spoken on every page of the scripture is only about how to get ready for life on the other side of the hedge. We call this gospel future. The good news is good news for the future. And this misconception has had devastating consequences on our views of God and our views of injustice and our views of death. 
People today, we keep seeking and looking for these things that are never going to fulfill us under the sun without trusting who God is. We, we all want to experience God's presence now, but we don't think it's really good for us until one day after we die. And this has all these consequences about justice and righteousness in the midst of our messed up world, understanding him as our shield and our reward. Karen Maines writes about a Sunday school teacher who wondered if her class understood the gospel. And so she asked them, if I sold my house and car, had a huge garage sale, and gave all the money to the church, would that get me into heaven? All the little kids go, no. That's my impersonation of little kids. So, yeah. <laughs> if I cleaned the church every day, mowed the yard, and kept everything neat and tidy, would that get me into heaven? And all the kids say, no. Well, if I was kind to animals, gave candy to all of you, and loved my husband, would that get me into heaven? And they all said, no, no. So she says, well, how do I get to heaven? One five-year-old boy in the back goes, you got to be dead. But that's exactly the problem. That's exactly the problem, right? Because we think it's only good for the dead. That's how we view the gospel. Oh, it's only good for that. Like heaven, kingdom of God, relationship with him, it's only good for after I die. If you've got to be dead, then the gospel doesn't help with today. Think about this. Why would God bother making a pledge to Abraham of land, of his presence, of relationship, if it didn't matter until he died? I think this is what, when Solomon asks the questions, it pushes us to go and begin to answer. When Jesus comes under the sun to our side of the hedge, where, where God invades our reality, he speaks the good news of something that happens now, here, today. This side of the hedge, under the sun. God makes his presence and a power available to us right here, right now. It's why Jesus shows up as the promised son, as the fulfillment of all the promises he made to Abraham over a thousand years before he showed up. See, this is, the gospel is more than a secret word that gets you through the hedge. It's more than a magic password that gets you over the bridge and into heaven. The gospel is the answer to all of Solomon's questions now. See, Jesus never said, I'm going to give you the minimal entrance requirements to get into heaven when you die. He doesn't. What does Jesus say? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That doesn't mean that there's not hardship. It doesn't mean there's not pain, but that's what he comes. This is that life abundantly is the result of what the gospel brings. It's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus' life, death, resurrection. But the result of the gospel is abundant life when we believe and live in what God has done for us. In the most famous prayer Jesus ever prayed, Matthew 6, 9, and 10, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make earth like heaven that we would be able to be a people who begin to see and live in God's goodness here and now. So with that question I started with, how are we meant to see this? How are we meant to see what God is doing? How is God bringing this all together in fruition? Well, the understanding is the gospel. God rescues us. God saves us. Then God sends us in the mission, into his mission in the world, and we begin to live differently. The mandate from Christ is to love one another. Make heaven come to earth by how as people begin to live in the world. And that starts with us because God uses people. I don't know why. Like I always say, I wouldn't choose to use me. I'm a knucklehead. I would choose to use anybody else but me. But God uses Abraham. And God uses a guy named Noah. And God uses you and me to make all of this possible. And I don't understand. I really don't. But Jesus is good. And the gospel is true. And he brings us to a place where when we understand it correctly, it results in a different life for all of us where we step into the world and begin to make a difference. 
John 14, verses 1 through 4, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Too many people hear those words and they think, yeah, that's right. Jesus is going to come back and I'm going to leave this trailer park called earth and go to heaven. It's going to be so much better. These words are about relationship. This is what a groom would say to his bride. I'm preparing a place. I have my eyes set on you. I am going to redeem you. I'm going to rescue you. This is what Jesus is saying. This is understanding what the gospel does. It rescues and saves us. Solomon had all of these questions because Jesus hadn't come. But now we, because Jesus has come, we know the way. We get to point the way. John 14, verse 4, he says, And you know the way to where I am going. Yes, we do. It's called the gospel. Jesus' overall mission is always to glorify God. But in that, he fulfills God's promises and brings the reality of God's presence and power to this side of the hedge. And as God said, it requires sacrifice. And God promised Abraham it would. And so Jesus comes and fulfills it. All the questions about Solomon had, and we have about injustice and pain and death, all the answers are found in Jesus. And so really, kind of comes down to my question for you today, is do you find your answers in him? And when I say that, I don't need somebody to be sarcastic and be like, well, I go to the gas station, I ask him, should I get 87 or 89? He doesn't care, it's your car. When I talk about you know, answers to this, it's, it's answers to reality, to life, to who we are, to who we are meant to be. Are they found in him? Because when they're not found in him, you're going to be frustrated, just like Solomon was. You're going to look at the world and say, why, 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 why? Instead of coming to a place in your life where you can trust him for who he is and what he has called you into. I think many times when we ask God, why this and why this? Why don't you do something about that? And God's like, I did. And you have now seen it because I've had you see it. Now go and do something about it. God calls us his ambassadors. God calls us to be his hands and feet to the world. God calls us to be his messengers sent out, spreading that good news of what the results of the gospel can actually bring into our lives. We get to be his people in the world. And it's a beautiful thing. And he calls us into it. We have mission and purpose and destiny because our God is good and restorative. This is one of the reasons I try and bring you guys to communion every single week because when we ask that question, is Jesus the answer to your life's ultimate question? I mean, this is what communion reminds us of. If I take that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice, it reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me as a people that God is restoring relationship with us through what Jesus did on the cross and resurrection. And then the result of that in our lives is being able to live out in this world in a way that reflects the goodness and the glory of who he is and changes how we then live our lives and interact in every circumstance we come into. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. There's going to be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you need prayer, if you are somebody who maybe in your life just thought that the gospel or believing in Jesus or goodness is only for the dead, you know, for, for one day over the rainbow and over the hedge, you can mow it down and climb over it. If you thought that's all it is, they'd love to pray with you about that. If you've got something going on in your life right now that you think Jesus can't even speak into because there's so much confusion for you in it, they would love to pray with you about that because the gospel is good news for today, for right now. And when we understand his rescue of us, it begins to change our hearts and our lives and it results in a completely different life because our God is gracious and good.
Uh, there's offering boxes next to every single door we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response. Uh, there's some food outside. Maybe grab some sermon notes, meet some people, and talk about some of those things with some other people this week. You know, where do you look around the world and you think, you know, God, do something about that, but then you realize you saw it. And God's like, well, maybe you should do something about that because I have rescued you and I've sent you on mission to go and do something about that. You know, where in your life have you just kind of thought that it's that the gospel is good news for after you're dead and not actually for life today? You know, kind of talk about those things because I think when we begin to understand how important the gospel is for everyday life for today, I think it again will change who we are and how we live because the reality of the gospel changes everything. Our God is good. Our God is rescuing. Our God does not leave us as a people who are lost. Our God rescues us, chases us down, brings us home, puts us in a relationship with him, and then sends us out again because he is good because he is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us of your goodness and your grace. So often we get so myopic in our focus where we just look at a very narrow thing called ourselves and life under the sun that we cease to see what you are doing. But you have come to deliver us from ourselves and our self-centered focus. I mean, you have once for all delivered us from our sins, but daily we still need this idea of deliverance from the myopic view we have where we stare at life under the sun. So teach us to be a people who begin to stare at you, who understand the gospel in terms of the results of what it brings, that our lives be bowed and surrendered to who you are, and that you would move us to places where we, when we see the things that we question in the world, that we'd be willing to step into those places. That we'd be willing to be you in those places. I ask that you would teach us to begin to trust you enough to trust you for the salvation that you have provided because you are good. And I ask that you today would move us as your hands and feet and ambassadors to this world to lift up who you are in all places. That we would cease trying to find the answers and all the things that we are running after under the sun, but we would find our answer ultimately in you. And in finding that answer, we wouldn't just hold it in our hearts and and hoard it, but it would so change us in a way that we see everything around us differently, that we would begin to see the world as you do. And our lives and hearts would beat in time with you. And we would walk out into the world around us, loving and serving and giving and caring because you have first done that for us. I ask that you would teach us to live out the good news because you are good. Amen.